The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Well, this is the last sermon for the spring in 2 Samuel. Maybe some of you are rejoicing over that, I don't know. Uh, or maybe some of you are lamenting, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but we will begin going into our study in the summer through uh, the Psalms coming uh, next week. And for 10 weeks, we'll be in the Psalms uh, 41 all the way through 50. And uh, so I hope you'll be here for that as much as you can be. And then we will return to Second Samuel uh, coming back in the fall. And we will be in Second Samuel all the way up until a couple weeks before Christmas. And we'll end... Our study in 2 Samuel there right uh, before Christmas. We'll spend a couple times probably in some Christmassy type sermons, and then we'll begin uh, the book of Hebrews, Lord willing, in January. And so we have, over the last uh, few weeks, as we've been, uh, really, uh, probably about a better part of a year, going through First and 2 Samuel, uh, we've been focusing a lot on biblical theology. And, and that's not... Um, it's not a muscle that we tend to flex a whole lot in the church. Biblical theology, most probably churchgoers maybe couldn't really define or discern what biblical theology actually is uh, or know it when they see it. But biblical theology is that discipline where we connect the pages of Scripture together. We see themes and threads and storylines that, uh, that continue throughout the Bible and go into the New Testament. And so we've been doing that quite a bit. We've got a heavy dose of that in Psalms, which will continue in the summer. We have been, uh, had a heavy dose of that in First and Second Samuel. And so we're asking the question, and we've been asking the question as we've studied Second uh, Samuel, what does David have to do with Jesus? So when we think about what David is doing on the throne, and we open our Bibles to the Old Testament, are we seeing there on the pages of Scripture just uh, some a collection of stories, just a, a random assortment of Old Testament stories that are uh, you know, designed to help us remember what happened a long time ago? Or are those passages actually relevant for us today, and do those passages in the Old Testament actually point us to Jesus Christ. And my argument has been from the very beginning of 1 Samuel all the way through that all of these passages, including the passages in the Psalms too, and all of the passages in the Old Testament, if they are rightly understood, should point us in our reading to Christ. We should, in, as we understand them, they should help us understand Christ better. And maybe you're not used to reading the Old Testament that way. And my hope is that in flexing this muscle over the past you know, year or more, and in the Psalms in the summer, that you will grow in your appreciation for the Old Testament. And in your ability, as you read the Old Testament, to understand how these things relate to Jesus Christ. And so, as a test of that this morning... I want you to just, as you're sitting there listening to the sermon, as you're recording maybe the points that pop up on the screen behind me, I want you to see if you can anticipate where I'm going, all right? Uh, it's okay. If you're spoiling the sermon for yourself in your mind, that's, that's okay. I want you to see if you can anticipate where I'm going and how these things actually lead to Jesus Christ. And what I think you will see is that David is a forerunner for Christ to come. He's the beginning of of the fruition of what God is accomplishing in the world. Now, I wonder if I'm the only one who has ever wondered to himself, what is God up to right now? Like, what is he, what is he doing right at this moment? What, what, when I look around me, you know, the world continues to go on as it normally does. If you've ever turned on the TV or, or listened to the news, have you ever thought to yourself, surely it can't get much worse than this? Have you ever thought that? And then you kind of know, I don't want to say that out loud because I think that it might. But have you ever thought to yourself, that it, it, surely it can't get worse than this? In fact, it's going to be really difficult 
for the society that we're in to become more immoral than it currently is. You feel that? You sense that? When you read things and you, you look at things, church attendance is on the decline. We know that across the globe, but now in the West especially. Coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, depression, anxiety, suicide are all on the rise. In pretty short order, it seems, that Christianity in our culture has been pushed to the margins. Your parents probably couldn't imagine spending a Sunday at home. They probably couldn't imagine not going to church on a Sunday morning, especially the older people in our congregation. And now it seems relatively common for that to happen. Is there ever a moment when you're praying about the Lord's return and really hoping for His return that you look around the culture and go, you know what, Lord? Now would be a pretty good time. If you just chose to do it now, I wouldn't be upset. The disciples of Jesus also had this question in Acts. As Jesus was, had resurrected, raised from the dead, he came to the disciples there on the, the mountain, and he was telling them, teaching them his last final things, and, and they're asking him questions. Lord, how about now? Is now the time where you're going to establish your kingdom forever? And then he just left. He just, he just disappeared. He just went into heaven. And there in Acts in chapter 1, they are left with their mouths open, looking up into the clouds, thinking, where'd he go? When's he coming back? Now? How about now? To the point, if you go back and read it, two angels come down and say, stop looking up into the clouds. Go about doing your work. They're waiting for his return. And he has to tell them, if you don't go down there and tell them to get going, they won't. They'll just stand there and look at the clouds. It leads many Christians, I think, wondering, well, why did he go? Why did he leave? He raised from the dead. Why didn't he just there and then set up their kingdom or maybe we start to think about why is he waiting so long to return why didn't he wait until i came to faith and then come back right don't we think that sometimes a part of this question i think can be answered by our passage this morning as strange as that sounds that we would read a passage in second samuel chapter 8 where david goes on all these military adventures and it would tell us about what Jesus is doing in the here and now, at this very moment. It would answer that question for us. What is Jesus doing and what's with the delay? Remember, David is the Lord's anointed. He is the Lord's king. God has set him up on the throne and he has promised him some great things. And, and, and he is building his kingdom. And not only is he building his kingdom through David, but it starts with David and it will ultimately culminate in Jesus. So David's kingdom that he is establishing right now is building. It's on the ascendancy and the top of the mountain is Christ. It will be when Jesus comes in to establish his kingdom is when we'll see it come to fruition. But so David is the beginning of God's long plan to bring his true King Jesus into the world. And so this passage that we're reading this morning gives us some insight. It reveals to us, if you will, what God's agenda is when he sets up his king, his anointed, on the throne. It's, it's basically God playing his cards, showing you his hand, what, what he's got. And this is the agenda that he has set forward. Now, I want you to remember what happened in the last chapter, because it's really important. Remember in chapter 7, God made some significant promises to David. We call that the Davidic covenant, but it's in the first half of chapter 7, where God makes all of these promises to David. 
And he, he tells him he's going to build him a kingdom. He's going to make him a name. He's going to give him a people. He's going to give him rest from all his enemies. He goes through a lot of things that he promises David. And then in the second half of chapter 7, David responds to God. And he, he gives him thanks and praise. And he says, who am I that you should give to me these kind of promises? Who am I that you should bless me with all of these things? So God has made some significant promises to David that he will always have an heir on the throne, that he's going to endure throughout time. And David has responded in faith and humility, wondering, who am I? Now, how are we going to see God provide this kind of protection for His king? He has promised him, you're always going to be enduring on the, on the throne. There's always going to be a son there. Your, your line is going to last forever. But how is His protection of David going to be revealed to us? Well, this passage on the surface is, is really pretty simple. And might even be one of those... Bible passages that if you're reading over in, in 2 Samuel 8 and your Bible reading on a daily basis, you, you just might skip through because it becomes so redundant. It's David going in and having military victory after military victory. But this passage is God's initial fulfillment of everything that he promised to David in chapter 7. It's him making good on his promises from the previous chapter. But we also see in chapter 8 what God's plan is. How is He going to do all this? What, what, is, what is going to be the way that He provides for David all of these things that He has promised us? As, as we've seen, if you've been in my building block on, uh, in the morning um, throughout the year, we've seen that the plan that God has for throughout the Bible, the, the big story that unites all of the books of the Bible is God establishing His kingdom on the earth. And now He has identified in David the line of, of where that king is going to come from, where his, his ultimate Savior is going to come from. And now that he has identified the line of kings being through David, what we're going to now see is what God's intentions are with this king. How he aims to bring his kingdom to fruition. So that's where we're going to focus most of our time this morning. We're going to answer the question, what is it that God means to accomplish by placing his king, his anointed one, on the throne? What is it that God means to accomplish by placing his anointed one on the throne? And first is that he's going to get victory over his enemies. When God places His anointed one on the throne, He is getting victory over His enemies. This is the main point of this passage. God getting victory over His enemies. The word defeated is used seven times in this passage. If you have the ESV translation in front of you, five times you'll see it translated defeated. Two times you'll see that word translated struck down or striking down, but seven times it's the same word repeated over and over in what, 15 or 16 verses there that's in front of you. So the point is obvious. This passage is about military victories that God gives to David. But what's more than that is you'll see twice this same statement reiterated. The first time at the end of verse 6 it says, The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. At the end of verse 14, you see it says there, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So this passage is really a result of what came before it. God has promised in the previous passage, I'm going to make of you a great name. I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. All of the promises that he made in chapter 7 are now coming to fruition. And the initial way we see God providing for David all of those promises is that he gives David victory over these enemies when he goes into battle. So first we see there it's the Philistines. Look in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. So first, he goes into Metheg Amah, which 
The word means something like bridal of the mother. It is the capital city of the Philistines. The, in, in, in the ancient world, mother would be the, the urban center, the big city. The, the daughters would be the suburbs, if you will. And so David went in and captured the bridal of the mother city, he, the, the real power center of the mother city. That is the capital city of the Philistines. That is the city of Gath. Gath is on the western coast in Israel, right near the Mediterranean Sea. So if you just picture the land of Israel in your mind and go directly west until you hit the Mediterranean Sea, there you will find the city of Gath, right there on the western coast near the Mediterranean Sea. David goes in and captures that. So David receives this promise from the Lord. And right after that, what does he do as a fulfillment of that promise? But he goes and takes the capital city of Israel's biggest enemy, the Philistines. He takes it right out from under them and puts Israel's biggest enemy under his feet, makes his enemy his footstool. But then look in verse 2. It doesn't stop with Philistine, the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to God and brought, the, and brought tribute. So having brought, gone to the west and conquered the Philistines and putting the west to his heel, he then turns his attention to the east and defeats the Moabites who are directly east of the promised land. Now this is probably the one and only time in Scripture where justice is meted out by a measuring stick. Literally, he lays them down on the ground he measures them out and divides them into thirds. Two-thirds he executes, and one-third he spares. Now, as enemies of Israel, he most likely had every right to go in and execute all of them as an enemy of the state and who are now subject to David. But he spares one-third of them and executes justice on all the rest of them. He preserves the one group who will likely pay tribute to David and will continue going on being servants of Israel. It's weird, I know, but just get over it. That's the way it was. All right, so the Lord has given David victory both to the west and now to the east, and now he turns to the north, and he goes to King Hadadezer of Zobah. He not only defeats the people of Zobah, but he also adds to his military. It says there by taking 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 soldiers. And if that wasn't enough, the neighbors of Zobah, they kick up a fuss in Syria. And they decide, well, if Zobah can't defeat you, we'll get involved. And so Syria goes to get involved. And he defeats the Syrians. Look in verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David has gone to the west and defeated the Philistines. Then he's gone to the east and defeated the Moabites, and now he's gone to the north and defeated both Zobah and the Syrians in battle. So when he leaves the north, not only does he gain military strength, he gains territory, but he also leaves, the text says, with shields of gold and very much bronze. And then not only that, but he also leaves with tribute from all the nations that he has conquered. So you understand, this isn't a situation where David is going into neighboring territories and fighting them and leaving with a weakened and depleted military who has just engaged another nation in battle. Instead, what is happening is he's leaving stronger than he entered. And all of this, we are told twice, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The Lord is doing this. So having conquered the west, having conquered the east, Having conquered the north, he now turns his attention to the south, or more properly, the southeast in Edom. Look at verse 13. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. 
Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Okay. So the point of all of these stories, this repetition of David's military victories, is not for you to be to look at that and be impressed or to gain some sort of new insight or knowledge about some events that took place in history. There's a couple of things that are being accomplished in this passage that the text is making evident to you over and over and over again. The first is that the Lord is fulfilling His promise to David. Don't let that fall off the radar here. The promises that He made in chapter 7, He is now immediately bringing to fulfillment in chapter 8. But second, David is conquering lands in the north, in the south, in the east, and in the west. Now, do you think that these are the only lands that David conquered? We're going to find out no. He conquered more than just these two in just a minute. But what we're told now is he's conquering lands west, east, north, and south. What is the author saying to you? 360 degrees around David is being conquered by David. There are no enemies, whether they are north, south, east, or west, that can stand when the Lord has decided to give victory to His king. So as His king goes into battle, there will be nobody who stands in the way of God accomplishing His promises. That is to say, David is making all of the enemies of the Lord his footstool. You going to pin that in your mind? If you're anticipating where I'm going in the sermon, listen to what I just said. David is making all of God's enemies his footstool. He is going around conquering to the north, south, east, and west in every cardinal direction. But he isn't merely getting military victory and destroying all these people. God, through his anointed one, is also receiving glory from the nations. God is also receiving glory from the nations. See, when it's recorded who gave to David silver and gold, the author gives us a list in verse 12. I want you to look at that with me. He says he got it from Edom. We know that about that. Moab. We know about that. The Ammonites. They're new. The Philistines. Amalek. That is the Amalekites. And from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehov, king of Zobah. So in addition to the countries that we've already seen, north, south, east, and west, we also have two groups in here who are kind of thrown in by the author, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, both of which are known rivals to Israel from ancient history and enemies to God. So all of them are also included. So David now owns everything north, south, east, and west, and all of the things east of the land of Israel too. Everything from the northeast all the way down to the southeast. Everything is also David's. So essentially, the, the author is giving these to you so that you understand this 360 degree pattern. But what is perhaps the most striking is the subtext here, in the subtext here, is that the God of Israel is the one receiving credit for all of the victory that David receives on the battlefield. Now we've already seen verses 6 and verse 14 where the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. But, but now also look at verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. So first of all, in all of these victories, you understand, David is not taking these to heart. In other words, these victories that David gets on the battlefield, they're not inflating his ego. 
He's not becoming self-sufficient and thinking to himself, I'm the one that actually provided all of these victories. What does he do with all of the things that are provided for him there from, as a spoil from his victory? Whether they be silver or gold, all the things that he had, de- he had collected from anybody he had conquered, he dedicated them all to the Lord. In fact, in 1 Kings, these come back, they were stored by David in the temple eventually, or stored by Solomon in the temple. They were preserved for all time, and they were eventually given out to the armies of Israel. David didn't keep these for himself, and he didn't also inflate his ego. He didn't think that he had provided this. He was under no illusion that he had done this. He always kept in mind, God has provided all of this for me, and he's making it known to everybody. Everything that he takes goes into the storehouses of Israel and belongs to the Lord who has provided this. All of this is fulfillment of what the Lord has promised. Who am I, David says in chapter 7, that you would do this for me? But more than that, we have this little story that takes place right in the middle of all these military conquests of this man named Joram, who is the son of Toy, who is king of Hamath. And what we find out about Hamath is Hamath was a town nearby Hadadezer, there in Zobah, who was always getting picked on by Hadadezer. So David goes in and defeats Hadadezer, and of course, Toy and the nation of Hamath are celebrating over this fact because David has taken one of their main rivals, their enemy, off the battlefield. And so King Toy sends his son Joram down to David to encourage him. Hey, David, how you doing? How's your health? You, you, do, you feeling okay? You, you're, you're, you're feeling well? This is, um, did you ever play soccer when you were a little kid and halftime? You'd break, and some soccer mom would bring, you know, orange slices and some juicy juice, and you get your little juice and your orange slices. This is this is David being provided the orange slices mid-game, right? The, he's Joram is coming down here and, and encouraging him, making sure his health is okay, and 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 making sure that he's got enough energy to keep going and continue to do what he's doing. Hey, we're right on board with you, okay? But but more than that, more significantly even than that is this Prince Joram actually goes by another name. And it's very telling that the author of 2 Samuel wants us to know that his name now is Joram. In 1 Chronicles 18, we're told that his name is Hadoram. H-A-D-O-R-A-M. Hadoram. And that name, Hadoram, means Hadad is exalted. Okay? So it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's gone on. Toy and the nation of Hamath has been servants to Hadadezer. And as such, to pay tribute to Hadadezer, Toy had a son. And he named him Hadad is Exalted. So as to make sure that Hadad knew, I celebrate you, I submit to you, I even named my firstborn son after you, the prince, I named him after you. It seems that Toy was subject to him, and that was some sort of an arrangement of tribute that he would pay to Hadadezer. So he got the name, Hadad is exalted. But notice what's happened now. He comes to David once Hadad has been defeated by David, and his name now is reported to us as Joram, which means Yahweh is exalted. You understand what's the difference there? His name is not Devorum, which would mean David is exalted. His name is Joram, which means Yahweh is exalted. So when Hadadezer goes in to conquer another town, who gets the glory for his conquering? Hadadezer does. All the baby boys, all the princes are named. Hey, Dad is exalted. When David goes in, and conquers a town. Who gets the glory? Not David. Yahweh. So it tells you everything about the way David is even approaching his seat on the throne. This is unheard of in the ancient Near East. No one does this. No one goes in 
to a town. Just look at all of the preserved archaeological evidence that we've dug up over the years of king after king having military conquest. And we read on these scrolls, such and such king is exalted above all. He has done all of these wondrous things. He is God's chosen one to bring all of this to the nations. That is very obviously not what God's anointed one is doing when he goes in town after town conquering. He's making his enemies his footstool, but they're not David's enemies. He's going in making God's enemies his footstool. In other words, God's king, his anointed one, is going in making God's enemies his footstool and receiving recompense from the nations. Now the nations are turning to David and bringing their glory to God's anointed one. Bringing their praise, their adulation, and all of their money, essentially, into Israel in their paying of tribute. So God, through His anointed one, is receiving glory from the nations. But not just that, He is also administering justice and equity to all of his people. God, through his anointed one, is also administering justice and equity to all his people. So if you're keeping score at home, we've got God, through his anointed one, is getting victory over his enemies. He's receiving glory from the nations, and he's administering justice and equity to all his people. Look at verse 15. We actually see this. It says, So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's where the point comes from. Straight from Scripture. That's what David is doing. So when you add all these passages up, chapter 7 through chapter 8, in fact, when you add all of what we've been doing in First and Second Samuel up to this point, what do you have? What do you have when you put it all together? Well, you have a promise of God to David, that David and David's line will be the one through whom God establishes his kingdom. He's identified that and he's made a promise so far. And then what do you have in chapter 8? But God gets to work accomplishing what he had already promised. So when you look at chapter 8, you see what God's priorities are. What are God's priorities? The kings from David's line, including David himself, they're going to sin. They're going to sin tremendously. Oh, they're going to do some terrible things. David himself is going to do some awful things in a few chapters. So they're going to sin in tremendous ways. But, but when they get things right, when they get things right, when they do it correctly, what are God's priorities for His people? What are they? Well, through his king, he's going to triumph over his enemies. Through his king, he's going to receive glory and praise from the nations. And through his king, he's going to administer justice and equity to all his people. So, so let's just put this in a real world context, okay? Let's take your mind back to 570 something BC. You're a Jew in exile in Babylon. You're in captivity. The kings of Israel have been conquered by Babylon, and you're sitting out here in captivity, and you've got in front of you 2 Samuel 7 and 8. That's all you've got. And then you hear the words of the prophets. Ezekiel is out there in captivity with you. You hear the words of Isaiah. You hear the words of Jeremiah, and they're preaching to you, and they're saying to you, God is not finished with King David. Now, David's long dead. He's been dead for years now. You're out, 500 years almost. You're out here in captivity all alone, and you're like, what do you mean you're not finished? With David, And you hear the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11, where he says, There will be one from the shoot of Jesse come up. I'm not finished with David's line. Jesse was David's father. I'm not finished. He's coming. You hear the prophet Jeremiah saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. 
I'm going to bring you back into the land under King David. And you're thinking, under King David? David's been dead for 500 years. What do you mean? God's reiterating to you time and again, he's not, he's, he's not done with David's line. He's going to bring this Messiah. This Messiah is coming on the horizon. He's going to be of the line of David. He's going to be king over Israel. And here you've got the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7 and 8 in front of you. When you look at what God is identifying as His King and what His King does when you're looking at it, you're hearing the words of the prophets come in here, and you're looking on the page at what God does when He establishes His anointed one on the throne, what kind of king are you looking for? I'm looking for one who gets victory over enemies, over God's enemies. I'm looking for one who receives tribute from the nations. I'm looking for one who administers equity and justice to his people. Wouldn't that be who you'd be looking for? That, that is the prototype of the Messiah to come. He's of the line of David. This is when, when he strikes it right, this is exactly what he's going to be doing. So then Jesus arrives on the scene. And how does Matthew open his gospel? He opens it with a genealogy, doesn't he? And what does he trace that genealogy through? The line of David and all of the kings leading up to Jesus. Here's David. David had had Solomon. Solomon had Rehoboam. And on and on and on it goes until we get to Jesus. David, Jesus is of the line of David. And what do we see happen there in the Gospel of Matthew while Jesus is still a baby? We see people coming from the east, wise men from the east, don't we? And what are they bringing in their hands? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they ask, where is the one born king of the Jews? Here is God's king coming onto the scene. And how do we know what is the evidence that this is the one that God has been telling us about for hundreds of years prior and has shown us in David that he's going to accomplish as a fulfillment of the promises that he made to David? Well, he's receiving tribute from the nations. But it's not just the nations. It's not just the Gentiles. What then happens? Flash what we could talk forever on the Gospel of Matthew, and we won't. We'll flash forward all the way into chapter 21, where he comes into town, into Jerusalem for the last time, riding on a donkey. And there standing in front of him is a host of Jews. As they stand there, they're laying palm branches on the ground, and they're proclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He's receiving praise and adulation, not just from the nations, the Gentiles. He's receiving it from the Jews as well. But here's where the story takes a turn. Perhaps in a way we didn't really expect. See, what should happen now is that he should administer justice over his enemies. He should get victory over his enemies. He should squash them like a bug. But instead, he goes to the cross and he dies for them. He becomes the enemy of God so that his people don't have to be. Because as it turns out, if he, as the perfect and righteous Son of God, had crushed his enemies and had made God's enemies his footstool, every single one of us would have been laid to waste. Not one of us would have survived. Every single person would have been squashed. So instead, he purchased us and bought us back from the penalty of sin and death. He conquered sin and death for us. So his conquest over his enemies became also a rescue operation. Whereby he takes his people from the grip of death and brings them now to life. So what happens now by virtue of his resurrection? Well, he comes to his disciples on the mountain in Matthew 28, he's resurrected from the dead. 
He has offered to them, he has given them forgiveness of sin. He has given to them eternal life. And he says this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Squash my enemies, therefore. No, that's not what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So why did he go away? What is he doing now? Why did he then disappear before his disciples and leave them? What is the conquest of his enemies that he's now engaged in? It's a mercy mission to go proclaiming the gospel to everyone who will hear. And as you hear of the grace and mercy extended to you in Jesus Christ alone, the call is now to repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your only means of salvation. Judgment is sure. Hell is real. And Christ will return a second time and there will be no other option. If you do not submit to him as king, you will be banished for eternity into the lake of fire. And there will be no option for return. So what he is now doing is giving you the option to repent of your sin and trust in him for salvation and have eternal life in Christ alone. You understand that his judgment over his enemies is also a rescue mission. He's offering you a way out. That's not something the enemies of David really got, was it? It was obey the law or you're dead. And Jesus is saying, I'm offering you grace and mercy and forgiveness because you cannot obey the law. It will punish you to an eternity in hell. So now is the time. Do you trust in me for forgiveness and repent of your sins and listen to the truth of the gospel? Or do you continue to reject me as king? That is the question that is on the table. It's a rescue mission. But what happens is he will ultimately return and he will defeat the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-28 says this, For he must reign until he put all he has put all enemies under his feet. Does that sound familiar? The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. Hebrews backs this up in 10, 12 to 13 when it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for th from that time until he, his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Plain and simple, what Paul is saying in, in 1 Corinthians and what the author of Hebrews is saying in, in, in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. The gospel is going out through all of his emissaries, asking people to repent of their sins and come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. And at the end, when it's all done, he will return and all of the rest of the enemies who reject Jesus as king, he will throw into hell for all of eternity and turn the kingdom over to his father. Now, what will happen then? The result of all of that will be a people who dwell in a perfect world with Christ as king, and no possibility of evil ever entering. So this is the picture that we get of all of eternity at the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, 
and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know what you call that? That is administering justice and equity to all his people. How about Revelation 21.4? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Does it say he will ignore every tear on their, uh, in their eye? No, it says he will wipe away every tear in their eye. Do you know what that means? That he keeps track of all of them. He understands all of the injustices that they faced. And what will he do? Administer justice and equity to all his people through his anointed one, the Lamb. In Revelation 21, 22 to 27, it says this, And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Does that look familiar? But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything, anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's what all of this all of First and Second Samuel is telling us. When you think about your life with Jesus, when you think about your inclusion in Christ, do you say to yourself, when people ask you, what does it mean that you are a Christian? Do you say to yourself, well, forgiveness of sin. Why do you go to church? Well, I think they teach you how to be a better person. Well, I mean, I like the eternal life aspect of it. When you describe your faith, when you describe your inclusion in the body of Christ, is it all about the perks that you get by your association with the anointed one, God's Messiah? Or do you submit to him as king and Lord? And do you say, look, he is king and Lord over the entire universe, over all of creation. I owe my life. I owe salvation. I owe everything that I have in this life or in the age to come to him. And he is due all praise and honor and glory and worship now and forever. How do you describe your inclusion in the body of Christ? See, Everyone wants forgiveness of sin. Everyone wants salvation and eternal life. All of those things sound great. But you can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. It is impossible. The two do not work together. So more than anything that you do or don't do, it is an entire lifestyle change. This is not merely me giving you a law. Go out and obey these things. It is an entire outlook on your way of life from here on out that you submit to Jesus as king. Imagine he was sitting on a throne here in Tuscaloosa. How would you respond to his rule over the city? What would you do? If he said, here is the law of Tuscaloosa, it's written right here in the Bible. What would you do? How would you obey? What I would submit to you is that as a Christian, that's exactly what's happened. That Christ has been enthroned on your heart. And now, you are expected, if you are included in his kingdom, to obey what he commands. So what is your relationship with Jesus like? He's disappeared, he's gone. He is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And he's doing it through the preaching and teaching of his gospel. 
So as you Sunday school teacher, as you teacher, as you, as you businessman or banker or whatever job that you have, as you go out into the city and as you do rightly what your bosses have asked you to do and as you tell them the reason for the hope that is within you, is that I submit to Christ above all and proclaim the gospel? What happens to those who hear? Well, some will reject. Some will turn away. Some ears will be closed. Some eyes will remain blinded. But what will others do? They will see that you obey Christ, that you love Christ, that you submit to Him as King, and they will want to submit to Him as well. And gradually, through time, as we are his witnesses and his emissaries in the world around us, as we represent King Jesus, we will see people coming under his lordship of their lives. And all of a sudden, what do we see? Well, there's still going to be sin in our lives, but then will there be repentance on the back end? Of course there will be. We see that there will be worship on Sunday, but what will our Mondays through Saturdays also look like? That worship is continuing throughout the week. Well, there will always be busyness to our calendars and obligations that we have, but our calendars for our families will be baptized. In other words, there will be space made in them for God. We won't be so busy that, you know what, I just don't really have time. No, our lives in total will be submitted to His Lordship. What does your life with King Jesus, who is sitting at the right hand of God, look like? Does he look like your king, or does he look like your homeboy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we think through your word, as we understand its ramifications, as we think about Christ sitting right now at the right hand of of you and ruling and reigning and executing justice on earth through the preaching of the gospel. I pray that people within earshot of this good news would respond in faith and repentance of sin. That we would respond to your lordship. That every day of our life would look like an act of submission. But I pray also that we would receive it as a word of warning. Just as David was on the march in the Old Testament, so we know Christ is also on the march. And that the preaching of the gospel is good news to those who are being saved. But to those who are perishing, it is foolishness. So Father, I pray that you would send this out as a warning to anyone who would hear the gospel and reject it and turn away from Jesus as king and spurn Christ in their hearts. That you would warn them of the dangers and the reality of hell. That it would become a very real image in front of them. And even if that seed that is planted in the heart doesn't come to fruition until much later in their life, I pray that you would bring fruit from that word of the gospel. That you would turn that sinner from his ways to respond to the grace and mercy that you have offered to him in Christ. That he would respond in repentance and faith. That he would be baptized and that he would go about proclaiming the good news to those around him. Could we see a picture of that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.